All right, well, good morning, and uh, we are back in the book of John today. We took a little time off for Easter, which I think was appropriate, and so now we find ourselves back in John, and where we are in John is chapter 3. And putting in context where we are, I'm going to do that here shortly, um, if you've forgotten where we've come from, but I'd like to begin this morning by reading our text, and it will be John chapter, uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. So let's look at that together. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God, and no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony." If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together this morning. It is, God, the highlight of what we're doing here, that we get together to look into your word. And as you have promised, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so here we find ourselves this morning looking at the words of Christ as they've been delivered down to us over the years in our scriptures. And so God, I pray that as we look at the words of Christ they need to, and we understand specifically in this text, that the words need to go farther than our eyes or our ears, but they need to come to our heart. And that's what I pray for us this morning, God, is that your word comes deep into our heart and transforms us as only your spirit can. And so we ask God, be faithful to us this morning in the preaching of your word, and I pray, change us through it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here we have a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, as it says, if you look back at verse 1, it says, now, Nic now there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Man, there is a lot packed into that one uh, sentence right there. Now, he was a man. He was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees, if you remember, we talked about them a while back. They controlled the synagogues. They exercised control kind of over the population. They were the developers of the oral tradition, uh, which had a lot of weight. They believed in life and death, and there was life after death. Now, you remember the Sadducees 
they did not believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. And I had a New Testament professor that always used to make the corniest joke. And he would say, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection of the dead, and that's why they're so sad, you see. And so, but you know what? That works. It sticks, doesn't it? So the Sadducees, they didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead, but the Pharisees, they did. Now, um, is one of the Pharisees comes to Jesus. And now he was not just an everyday Pharisee. He was also a ruler of the Jews. Do you see that in your text? Or if you have an NIV or something like that, it might say he was part of the Jewish council. He's part of a high council. Uh, of the Jews. And that council that he was a part of was called the Sanhedrin. And again, we've talked about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a, a collection of, of Jews, and it was 70 men plus the high priest. So 70 men, 71 men total, and the high priest would preside over that group of people. Now, the Sanhedrin was under the control of Caiaphas during this time, during this period of Jesus' ministry. The, the guy really in charge was Caiaphas. Uh, they plotted, this group of people plotted to have Jesus killed. You can find that story in John 11. If you want to wait here in a couple of years, we'll be in John chapter 11, and uh, we can read about that story. Um, but this, this group of people also plotted to kill Lazarus um, because his story was causing many to believe in Jesus. And they said, remember Lazarus was, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now that's a big deal. Now the story of Lazarus spreads, and the, the many people are coming to believe in Jesus because of the great thing that he did. And so this council that he was a part of gets together and says, let's just kill Lazarus and we won't have to deal with that anymore. Sounds like a good idea, right? Well, it did to them. You can find that in John chapter 12. So we notice that he comes to Jesus how? By night. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Now, of course, there's lots of speculation why it says by night night. Why did he come to him at nighttime? Well, I think the most apparent thing to us is he came to him by night so that it was hidden from the public eye. He came to him by night so that he, he could go and talk to Jesus in private. Um, what did he want to know? Well, well, we'll get to that here soon. But I think it should be said that the fact that Nicodemus came does not mean that he represented the entirety of the Pharisees or of the Sanhedrin. But because it was at night, he was just representing himself. I, even though I am a Pharisee, yes. Even though I am part of the high council, yes. But listen, just as a person, not, in, not as a title, but as a person, I just want to know, uh, who are you exactly? And that's really what he's asking. Now, he says, if you continue on in, in verse 2 and following, he says, now, he calls him rabbi, teacher. We know, we know that you're a teacher, and uh, we know this because you do great signs. And there's not anybody who can do the signs you do unless he's from God. So we have concluded, right? And who's the we there? You notice it's in the, it's in the plural, we. Um, we know that you are sent from God. We know you are a teacher of God. Who's the we? I don't know. Um, it, but it most likely does not represent the entirety of that council because we know that they were generally not for Jesus, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have put him to death. So we know he's not representing the whole council there, but maybe him and a, and a small, close group of people who, who were really wrestling with the fact of who Jesus was. Um, so that's the we. We know you're a teacher sent from God, and that's as far as it went. You did great signs. You're a teacher of God. We believe that. Okay, that's what he believed. Is that enough? Is it enough to believe that Jesus was sent from God, the true God, and that he performed miracles? Is that enough? What do you think? No. Um, you can believe that 
and be a Muslim. Did you know that? Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet of God. In fact, he was one of five elite messengers sent from God. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus worked many miracles. Actually, they even have some that we don't have recorded. Imagine that. And Jesus will return to bring justice to the world called the descent of Jesus. These are Muslim teachings about Jesus. It is not enough to believe that Jesus is a prophet sent from God. It has to go deeper. So for Nicodemus, his belief in Jesus that he was sent from God based on his miracles is not enough. Now remember, I told you I was going to put this in context. We look at the very last thing that Jesus said in chapter 2. Because what I want us to see is that Nicodemus is case and point of what Jesus had just said previously. All right, look at verses 23 through 25 back in chapter 2. So that's just before chapter 3 starts. It says, Now, when he was in Jerusalem, he ate the Passover feast, and many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So just like Nicodemus, you're doing great signs, you must be prophets sent from God. But was that enough? In verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people. Indeed, he didn't need anyone to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, what a surface level belief. Was that saving belief? Was that saving faith in Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. They had knowledge. Remember we talked about this last week, didn't we? They had knowledge of Jesus, but something was missing. You can believe that Jesus is sent from God. You can believe he was a great prophet, great words. You can believe that he was born of a virgin. You can believe that he did all these miracles. It's not enough. There has to be more. And let's continue looking at verse 3 now. Jesus answers and tells us, what, exact, what, what must be different then? What more do I need to do? Verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, the words there, amen, amen. Some of your translations might say, very truly, I tell you. He's just really emphasizing that what he's saying is very significant and very important. I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Just remember that phrase right there, okay? He cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. All right, verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, how can, and you know, We get an insight into who Nicodemus was by this response, don't we? How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Maybe kind of a a basic question, but listen, remember who this guy was. This guy was not your average, run-of-the-mill, ordinary guy off the street. He was not only a Pharisee, he was part of the Jewish high council. He was a teacher of Israel. This guy was not foolish. He was not dumb. Don't let his answer fool you. He is trying to trap Jesus into thinking that Jesus is the one that's a fool. Because he's saying, okay, I came to investigate who you were, and this is the answer you give me. How can a man be born a second time? Can he enter back into his mother's womb and just be born again? Let's look at Jesus' response to him. He says, truly, truly. Maybe let me phrase it this way. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. We we first, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Second phrase, 
cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. He has rephrased the same point to Nicodemus that in hopes that the teacher of Israel, because later that's what he's going to call him, are you the teacher of Israel? He's going to say, now maybe you'll understand this wording. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and spirit. Do you understand that? He's saying. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel at what I say to you. You must be born again. Because the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Born of the water and Spirit. Let's just look at that phrase right there, because that's very significant, isn't it? Jesus gives us a better understanding into this phrase. What does it mean to be born again? I don't need to go into that. Living where we live, you have all, without a doubt, heard the phrase born again. Right? And it's true, we must be born again. But let's understand it biblically. What does Jesus mean when he says born again? Well, you must be born of the water of water and the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it not mean? Let's clarify it just a little bit. Is Jesus speaking of two births here or one? Is he saying, just think about it, is he saying, and maybe this is the way you read it, Unless you are born from your mother and from the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Okay, Water has a lot to do with birth. I won't go into those details. But water and birth go together. So is, is he saying you must be born of water, the natural physical way, and you must be born of the Spirit? Now that is the equation you need. Physical birth, spiritual birth equals kingdom, right? Is that what he means? I would suggest no. Or, does he mean it this way? Does he mean that you must be born of water and the Spirit in the sense that you need the baptism of water and the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to have true spiritual life in the kingdom? Is that what he means? Again, I would say no. That's not what he means. Because here's what those two phrases would mean. Unless a person is physically born and then spiritually born, he cannot be spiritually born. Well, that's kind of redundant. Unless he's spiritually born, he can't be spiritually born. Well, okay. So that, you can't, you got to see, that's not what it means. Or the other phrase, unless a person is baptized by water and then baptized by the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Is that what it means? We've talked much about baptismal regeneration, okay? If you don't understand that, you want more information about that, please, let's talk about that, okay? Jesus is not preaching here that you must have water run over your body in order to be saved. And I'm going to prove this to you by a text that I'm putting on the screen. And we're not talking about baptismal regeneration here. What we're talking is what does the text actually mean? Now, remember who he's talking to. Who is he talking to? Nicodemus. Who was Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher. He knows Scripture. All right? So, what was Jesus trying to say? Here's the text I want to bring to you. This is Ezekiel. Did we already miss a point in your notes? No? No, we haven't. No, we're good. We're good. We're good. I think. Normally, I have a copy of the notes, okay, up here. I don't have it, so I'm not on track with you this morning. You're going to give me yours? Thanks. Thanks, Dwayne. Man, 
Dwayne is all right. Okay. No, we're good. Yeah, well, we're all right. All right, I will, this is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. I have two words highlighted here. Of course, they're very significant to our conversation. Let's see what it says. It says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Who's the I talking? God. So that's probably important that we understand that. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put it within you and I will remove your heart of stone, uh, your heart of stone for flesh and give a new heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is happening in this situation? We have God using the imagery of water to show that there's going to be a cleansing. Is this cleansing external or internal? It is an internal cleansing. Is it done by water or the Spirit? It is done by the Spirit. So Jesus says, let me, let me phrase it this way, Nicodemus, you teacher of the Scriptures. Do you remember this passage from Ezekiel 36, even though they wouldn't have referenced it that way? He said, do you remember, do you remember this passage? That I, God, will clean, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. Does that mean that all the dirt on his body will be washed away? Is that what we need primarily? Or do we need an internal cleansing of all the filth that is in our heart? Do we need that cleansing? Yes, we do. In fact, no, we don't even just need our heart washed. We need the, entire, the entirety of our insides washed out and replaced with something new altogether, which is exactly what the Spirit of God does in the new birth. In the new birth, we have a new heartbeat. In fact, we have a heartbeat for the first time because he takes a heart of stone and he replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh that beats and lives, where a heart of stone is nothing. So in the new birth, we are born, we might say, for the first time spiritually. Okay? So summarize it this way, and this is in your notes, that the new birth is an internal spiritual cleansing by the Holy Spirit. That is the new birth. This is what it is to be born again, that a heart of stone that is dead is replaced by a heart of flesh that functions. How does it function? Physically or spiritually? Well, it functions spiritually. We already have, I don't know if you notice or not, but your heart isn't made of stone. So we don't literally need God to reach in our chest like he did with Adam. And not only remove a rib, but break open our rib cage, take our heart out that is made of stone, and replace it with a true heart of flesh. We don't need God to literally do that. We need God to do that in a way that is spiritual. But it is no less real. God really does this. The heart that once was dead is torn out and is replaced by a heart that is alive. And until you are born again, you will remain in that dead condition. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. You didn't have a heart. I don't want to stay in that place. Remember Titus 3, 4, and 6. I have this on the screen for you as well because this is an important passage concerning this. This is Titus 3, 4 through 6. It says, notice again the words, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? 
by the washing, get the water there, the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out. There's the water language again. He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Here's a word that you need to know. That word is regeneration. Do you see it there in that text? That's not in your notes, but write that word down. That should have been in your notes. The word regeneration is a very important word. It's the theological term for the phrase being born again. You are being regenerated by the Spirit of God. This Bible speaks of it as the new birth, being born again. You are made into a new creation. You are renewed. You are remade. You are born of God. All of this refers to spiritual regeneration. For example, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, okay, there's the first state, even though we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved, you have been raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. So that in the coming, ages, uh, the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He continues on. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now what does that little phrase mean? We're going to continue to talk about this new birth, but we're going to talk about it as Jesus lays it out for us. It is true that kinds generate their own kinds, right? However, Jane and Lena might want an animal to produce a different kind of animal. It's not going to happen. I remember when we had chickens and they laid eggs. And I remember Jane was, was, was real, real young and we had the eggs. And she said, what, what do you think they're going to be? What, what are they going to be? I, I, well, it's probably going to be a chicken, I would imagine. Because chickens, after all, give birth to Chickens, I don't birth, they give eggs, but you know what I mean. Chickens give chickens. People give people. And this is how it works. Likewise, flesh can only give birth to flesh. Can the flesh give birth to spirit? No. But the spirit generates after its own kind. The flesh generates after its own kind. Therefore, the spirit gives birth to spirit. So what do we need in order to be born of the Spirit? We need the Spirit, right? We don't need flesh to, have to be born spiritually. We need the Spirit to be born spiritually. This has so many implications. For Nicodemus in particular, he had worked his way up the ladder. He was part of the high council. There were only 70 guys plus the high priest part of this council. He, was, he, he has made it. There is nothing else that he can do by his flesh to be in the kingdom of God. In fact, he thought he was part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus makes him aware that there is nothing that you can produce, nothing that you can do, nothing that your body can produce that will put you into the kingdom of God. In fact, you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And you can't do it yourself. You need something from outside of you to make you born again. But Nicodemus, he doesn't get it. And we're going to continue to see that. 
So we summarize this point this way, is that only the Spirit of God can generate the new birth. In fact, the flesh is of no help at all. And I didn't make that up. That's almost quoting Scripture right there, okay? That is, the flesh is of no help. We're going to read that text in here in just a little bit. It is not only the Holy Spirit that works in the act of regeneration, though. And I want to talk about this very briefly. I have a couple of points here. I want you to see that regeneration, that is coming alive, being spiritually reborn, is an act of God Almighty in the Godhead, that is the Trinity is at work in regeneration. Amen. And I want you to see how. Number one, we first see the sovereign work of the Father. Without the sovereign work of the Father, there can be no spiritual regeneration. It doesn't just come about one day by your own willing, by someone. It doesn't matter. I want to read two texts for you. John 1, 12 and 13. Listen to this. But, who all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Listen to how they were born. They were not born of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man. That cancels out everything you can do, by the way but of God. How are you born again? Your own will? Your own desires? Do you desire God with a dead heart? Would it be possible for a dead heart to desire and long for God from the heart? You'd probably need a heart to begin with, wouldn't you? Okay, so we see the sovereign working of the Father, and it's made very clear, John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Could it be any more clear of the sovereign working of the Father in regeneration? I think not. Let's look at also the atoning work of the Son, now, the Father can draw. Now, how does he draw? Does he use his spirit to draw? Well, sure he does. But God is a trinity never to be divided, right? The, the trinity works in such a way that we could go on forever try to explain it, but we're not going to. We, we have to just accept the fact that God works in a mysterious Godhead, and he is God in three persons. Absolutely. Um, but, so we see the sovereign work of the Father, yes. And then we see the atoning work of the Son. Without the atoning work of the Son... Spiritual regeneration would not be possible. Without the sovereign work of the Father, spiritual regeneration would not be possible. So what is the atoning work of the Son? Colossians 2, 13 and 14, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How did we come to be alive? Because our trespasses had been forgiven. Now, how were our trespasses forgiven other than through the atoning work of Jesus Christ? There is no other way. So we needed the atoning work of Jesus and the sovereign work of the Father in order for spiritual regeneration to even take place. Ephesians 2.16, that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility between God and man had to be killed in order for God to pour out his love on us in Jesus Christ. Is God going to pour out his love on someone where there is hostility? No. 
he's going to pour out his wrath. Those are the only two things you get from God. I hope you're on the good side of that. And the only way to get on the good side of that is by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where he ends this whole story. We're not there yet. And then third, we have the renewing work of the Spirit. So first, we have the sovereign work of the Father. We have the atoning work of the Son. And then we have the renewing work of the Spirit. The Trinity is certainly at work. The entirety of the Godhead is at work in, in your salvation. It says, John 6, 63 through 65, it is the Spirit who gives life. Now, pause. Is it the Spirit alone that we need in order for us to have life? Well, no, we need the sovereign work of the Father. We need the atoning work of the Son. And it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and those who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now in that passage, we see all three parts of the Trinity at work. It is the Spirit who gives life. No one can come to me, that is Jesus speaking, unless it is granted him by the Father. Okay, we see all three parts working together in order to make the new man new woman, right? To be born again of the Spirit of God, we need God. Now the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What does that mean? That sounds uh, odd. It sounds like you're reading some kind of ancient poetry or philosophy or something. What is he even talking about? The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it goes. Okay, we all know that. We've kind of heard that before. Um, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, stop. I get the illustration. How does that work with the people who are born of the Spirit of God, though? I get the fact that I can't see the wind. I don't know where the wind is going to come from, except, you know, meteorologists kind of stuff. They kind of know a little bit. But even in that, they are making, you know, predictions. But you got to come back to the time. Come back to the time of when this was written. You don't know where the wind is going to come from. Is it going to come from that way? Is it going to come from that way? Is it going to come from that way? Is it going to come at 2 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour? I don't know. You can't predict it. You can't change it. You, there's nothing you can do about it. And so it comes and so it goes. And there's nothing you can do about it. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God. You don't control the wind, but you see its effects. You don't control the Spirit but you see its effects. You can't manipulate God. You can't twist God's arm to change his mind. If you were here for Secret Church, you understand that a little more now, I think. That was great. If you missed that, you, missed, you really missed something, by the way. So it is with the work of God on regeneration. You cannot manipulate the work of God, but you can see the evidence of him working everywhere. The flesh is of no help at all. Not the will of man, the will of the flesh, but it's of God. These things are undeniable, and they're very clear in Scripture. Now, the last part of this that we need to kind of dissect just briefly Unless one is born again, he cannot see, what? The kingdom of God. Unless he uh, is born of water and spirit, which is one birth, a washing and renewal of the spirit, that's one thing. 
um, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So we need to talk about, and again, I said very briefly, this, we could spend a whole series of time on the kingdom of God, which we probably will at one point. But what is he talking about when he says the kingdom of God? Two different things here. Uh, number one, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we can talk about the universal kingdom of God in the sense that the Lord, as Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. In one sense, then, the universal kingdom of God is everywhere because everything bows to his sovereign rule. Right? Who is there when God acts that can come against him and say, you can't do that, God? Well, that would mean that he is a sovereign ruler. Right? This is his kingdom. Go back and read the book of Job, to familiarize yourself with even the most powerful of demonic activity. They needed the permission of God Almighty to work. You cannot just do whatever you want to do in God's kingdom, but you bow to his rule continually. But that's not the kingdom he's talking about here because we already live in that kingdom. So there's a, a different part of the kingdom of God. So what part of the kingdom must we enter into? I'm already part of God's kingdom, but there's a different part. Just like I'm a child of God, but I'm not a child of God. When we've had that conversation, everyone's a child of God because you were born of God. But in a sense, you are not a child of God because you weren't born of God, right? In a different way. There is one fleshly way and there is one spiritual way. So he's talking about a spiritual kingdom here, right? He's not talking about the universal kingdom. He's talking about the spiritual kingdom of God which not everybody is a part of, by the way. There is another kingdom of God that you must be born into. Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Is that a future event or is that a current event? It is a current event. If you, by faith in, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are by that faith as a regenerate person by the Spirit of God. You are in that moment. You are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Is it possible to see the kingdom of God now? Well, yes. Is it possible to see it in its fullness? Not now. No, not right now. The church is the community of the kingdom, but not the kingdom itself. That's a quote from George Ladd. I thought it was very helpful in understanding this. The church is not the kingdom. We are born into the kingdom. The kingdom is God's rule, and we are the community who submit to his rule, right, spiritually. Now, the Catholic church views the church as the kingdom itself, and that plays itself out. We see that working, don't we? But we are not the kingdom itself. We are born into the kingdom. The church lives under the rule of God in his kingdom. So we can see it. We can feel it. Yet, we, this is in your notes, we experience today what is called the already not yet tension of the kingdom of God. I have a quote here from John MacArthur. Someday Christ will return to earth and reign in his kingdom. In the meantime, he rules in the hearts of all those who love him. Is Christ ruling and reigning now? Well, yes. Will he rule and reign again in the future? Yes. That's the tension, 
well, he's ruling, then why is there still sin? Right, that's part of the tension. It's hard to come to terms with that tension, isn't it? And by the way, whether you think of the kingdom here, there's a couple eschatological differences here, the, how you view the end times, but either way, no matter where you fall on those lines, you admit that Christ is ruling, that he is the risen Savior and Lord, the King of kings. Right, Jesus even said, if I do works among you, then the kingdom of God has come among you. And you see it, but you might not be able to see it. That is, unless you're born of God, unless you're born again. Remember about this kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15.50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. We need to keep going here. Verse 9. Oh, we got a few verses to go here, don't we? Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, but you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you the heavenly things? Now, it will be said here that Nicodemus does not understand why? Because spiritual realities are spiritually discerned, and those who do not have the Spirit of God cannot discern spiritual matters. First Corinthians 2, 10-14 tell us a great deal. Verse 12 specifically says, Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Are there times when there's a spiritual reality, but you, you don't get it? Yes, I hope you admit that the answer is yes to that. You don't understand all spiritual realities, whether you want to think you do or not. I don't understand them. You don't understand them. There's not anybody who understands them, but Jesus did. How is it that a man can understand all of these heavenly things? Well, he tells us in verse 13. No one has ever ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. How is it that Jesus knows all these spiritual heavenly realities? Well, that's where he came from. If anybody has insight into these things, it is the one who lived there from eternity past. And he came to heaven to open our eyes to the spiritual realities that always have been. And he came to make a new way that our heart of stone might be turned into a heart of flesh. And so at the end, he begins to, 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 to tell Nicodemus, here's how this must happen. He's saying, I have a claim on heavenly realities that you don't have, even as the teacher of Israel, as you call yourself. There are things you don't understand, Nicodemus, and it's because you don't have the Spirit of God. Nicodemus wasn't a believer in the sense that he was born again by the Spirit of God. He says, you don't understand, you don't see it, you don't get it. Let me tell you how this works. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the servant, uh, the serpent, excuse me, in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now we need quickly to go and reference this story. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 9. Because if you don't know how Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you're not going to understand what he's saying, that Jesus must be lifted up just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. 
So let's just, it's a very short story in, in the Old Testament. Um, it's verses 4 through 9. Let's just read those verses and see what happened. Numbers 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Hor they sent out by the way of the Red Sea to the ground of the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, as they normally did. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out to Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. We loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent, here's a big part, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. And the people came to, by the way, fiery is a reference to their venom. Okay, they weren't like snakes on fire. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole. Everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and live. Now, here's what's significant. Moses prayed for the for the people, what did the people ask Moses to pray for? That God would take the serpents away. Did God do that? Mm -mm. No, he made a different way, didn't he? I want to encourage you today because here's the first option. Moses prays to God, Lord, please remove all these serpents. Take them away so it's not a problem for us anymore. It's option one, God removes the serpents. Okay, move on. Here's option two, though. The, the people say, remove all the serpents from us, and God says, no, I'm not going to do that. Because remember, the Lord is the one that sent them. Okay, they didn't just happen upon them. We see the active hand of God sending serpents to bite people so that they might die. So option two is God is not going to remove the serpents, but instead he's going to create a cure. And what is the cure? By just simply looking at a bronze serpent on a pole. What a weird resolution to that. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. By the way, did any of this catch God off guard? Did God know what he was doing? Did he already want to create this bronze serpent on a pole? Yes, and so this was his way of creating that. He said, I want you to take this bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and I want you to lift it up crazy happenstance that that happens to be how Jesus was lifted up on a pole, right? Well, no, again, God knows what he's doing here. He is creating a picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ many years before it happened. And he's saying, if you just look and believe, you will be healed. And just as the snake was raised up on a pole, so Jesus will be raised up and has been raised. And if you just look to him in faith, you will be healed. So you might ask, why doesn't God just take all this sin away? Why, doesn't God, why did God even create sin, like the, the, the ability for us to sin in the first place? Why did God create the trees of the knowledge of good and evil? Or the tree and the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of, of life? Why did he create that tree? God, couldn't you just have bypassed a lot, of, a lot of really bad stuff if you had just not created that tree? Did God know what he was doing when he created that tree? Amen. Absolutely. Did God know what he was doing when sin entered the world? Absolutely. God has so determined, and we don't have an answer for this. We don't really have a good answer, but we have a general answer that must do. 
God has so determined that sin entering the world was the, was the way that he could receive the most glory from mankind. Do not question him on that. Who are you to question God? God, why don't you just take all this sin away? Because if God were to just take the serpents away, take sin away, would you have to continually look to the sun? Would you have to continually rely on him every day of every moment? I was bit again today by sin. I was bit again. So where do you need to look? Look to the sun. You're going to leave here. You're going to be bit by sin again. Where are you going to look? Look to the sun. And if sin was just gone, when would you look to the sun? You wouldn't have any reason to look at the sun. Look to the sun that you might live. It is the only cure to look, in Jesus, to look at Jesus Christ, believing in faith. Look to Jesus. I'm going to end here, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You know it. You know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's doing, and we praise him for his miraculous workings of regeneration. What a mystery and a miracle and a joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have done.